Good morning. He is worthy of our praise, is he not? Well, glad to be here with you this morning. My, Pastor Sandy has actually given me the opportunity to come share the word with you guys this morning. He is away, but he will be back next Sunday. He wanted me to let you know. So if, you haven't gotten, if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, my name is Andrew. I'm the high school youth pastor here at the church. And I want to open up the Word with you. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. And if you need a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, one of the ushers will gladly put one in it. Ephesians chapter 5. And with that... Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for just a a sweet time of worship, Lord, that we can come before your throne and just give you the honor and praise and glory, Lord, with our our hearts and our lips. And I pray, Lord, that now as we dive into your word, Lord, you'll just show us how to continue doing that with our lives and the way we live. We love you and just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Show of hands. Who here is a parent this morning? Great, a lot of you. Thank you, parents, for all you do. Okay, you can put your hands down. And another show of hands, uh, who here at some point in their life was a child? (laughs) Everyone's hands should be up. If your hand's not up, I'm I'm really confused. But childhood, we all had childhoods, right? Now, childhood for a high schooler was just a few years ago. And for some of us, childhood was decades ago. However long ago it was, though, if we reflected back to our story, somewhere in our childhood, we would see our childhood heroes. We all had childhood heroes, right? Usually it was mom and dad. And these heroes, they play a pivotal role in a child's life as they seek to imitate and mimic the things their hero does. A child learns best through imitating their parents, And for me, one of my childhood heroes was my dad. He's a handy guy, if you've met him before. I I would watch him repair things, work on the car, always fixing what was broken. And my parents told me I would break my toys just so I could go and put them back together, just like my dad did. I wanted to imitate him, be just like him. And in our text today, this is Paul's point to the Christian In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So since we are now children of God through faith in Jesus, we should imitate him in our life. Speak like him. Live like him. And we do that, as Paul says, by walking as he walks. He's going to show us this throughout this chapter, walking as children of God. So the way we walk refers more to our, how, we, how we're living our lives. Because we put on this new man described in the previous chapter of Ephesians, chapter 4, and have this new life in Jesus, we should therefore be imitators of God and walk worthy of what he's done for us. The thing I think we all need to realize up front, though, when we get into this, is the way we live our lives matters to God. And it's a reflection. 
It's a reflection in a, a response to the work that Jesus has already done in us, in our hearts. So Paul, he's going to cover four characteristics throughout this chapter for the Ephesian Christians and for us to imitate in the way we walk. And with each point, he's going to contrast the way we shouldn't walk as well. He's going to say two in each point. In imitation of the world. So we have to make a choice, is what he's going to end up saying to us. Paul tells us to, first, walk in love, not lust. Walk in light, not darkness. Walk in wisdom, not foolishness. And finally, walk in submission, not selfishness. So, this, this is where we're headed. Got a, a lot of verses to get a, in, a, in in front of us. But throughout it, I'm going to be posing this question. I want our, this question to be in our forefront of our minds. And that's, who are we imitating? In other words, do I look more like my heavenly Father, or do I look more like the world? Who is that person looking back at me in the mirror each morning when I get up? We need to be honest with ourselves about who we see when we look into the mirror. I mean, when you look in the mirror in the morning, do you, do you recognize smiling like, oh my goodness, wow, all these great things I have in my life are a result of God's work in me. Wow, I, I'm so thankful. Thank you, God. I'm not the person who I used to be when I look in that mirror. Or do you look in the mirror? And you struggle to look at yourself in the eyes, in the reflection, ashamed that you're not who you say you are, bearing more resemblance to the world, not the Father. You know, I know firsthand in my life how easy it is to talk a big talk about God, but not actually walk the walk. But if you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk, Talking about a relationship with Jesus without backing up your words with equivalent action makes it fair to ask if the things you claim are even true at all. So, let's take a look at our own lives this morning, examine the way we are walking. Let's start again in verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love. As Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. First point, walk in love, not lust. The first way we should walk as we imitate God is to walk in love. 1 John 4, 8, you've heard it before. It tells us that God is love. Love and God can't be separated He is perfect in his love. No one could ever love you like God has loved you. But love, I mean, that's a huge subject, right? What do you mean just walk in love? There's so many varying opinions on what true love is. So what is the God kind of love? He tells us. Walk in love, here it is, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God. The God kind of love, true love, is a self-sacrificial love, a self-giving love. Jesus, he took the punishment that we deserved of God in our place, and, and this is what we should be imitating, laying ourselves down 
for others. And boy, is that a tall order, (laughs) right? God, you mean I got to love that guy over there? Everyone, are you sure? No, sacrificial love isn't selective love. And just as Christ has laid down his life for us, you can lay down your life for others in the same manner. But we often think, God, can't can't I just lay down my life for someone else in a big dramatic way to rescue and show my love for them? Be the hero in the moment in someone's life? Picture this. You're at work and five Muslim terrorists come in with AK-47s and they barge in and say, we're hunting down Christians in this area. We're going to shoot someone down for being a Christian. Who's going to be the victim? Well, a lot of us would like to say, we're going to start raising our hands and say, I'll do it. I'll die for you all. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm going to do this for you. I mean, a lot of us would say that. Big dramatic moment and all of that. Look, in many ways, that would be much easier to do than what God actually does call us to do, and that's to lay down our lives in little ways each day, not just the big dramatic ways. For example, let's just say your life is like worth this $100 bill. Now, don't take that literally, please. It's not true. But, for example, a $100 bill. It would be easy to lay down this $100 bill in one big payment. Not easy for me. This is a lot of money to me. But, but what does God typically say? He says, no, break it down. Let's lay down our lives in countless little ways each day. So break it down further, and we can break down a dollar in many ways, right? I, I did this for you for illustration. Um, I have $100 in pennies. If you can do math, that's 10,000 pennies. And he says, I want you to go out and distribute these one by one. Go lay down your life in this way. But God, I can't feel like a hero if I do that. I can't be in this big dramatic moment. Can't I just do it the dramatic way? No, God says, lay down your life. For others, piece by piece. Always, as you're doing that offering, you're doing that, you're offering your sacrifice unto the Lord as well. That takes a whole lot more effort than this. You know, you, you put the, kid, the needs of your kids first and you pour yourself out a little bit. Put the needs of your wife first. Pour yourself out a little more and probably a little more, husbands. <laughs> then... You, you, you have that, that classmate that you really just can't stand. You've got to pour yourself out. And that coworker that you can't stand and disagree with everything on, and you're so happy it's 4th of July this week because you have one less day to deal with them. No. The, the right response to Jesus' self-giving love is to treat others the same way. But also, Paul contrasts walking in love and warns us to not walk in lust. He continues, verse 3. He says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, 
Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather give, giving of thanks. So Paul, he gives us this comprehensive list of things that are the opposite of love, of walking in love. Fornication. We've heard that word before. You've heard it taught from this pulpit before. It's the catch-all term, pornea, which is this all sexual activity outside of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. That includes all kinds of things. If it says all, porn, homosexuality, lusting after another man's wife or another wife's husband, and more. I mean, the world calls fornication, though, making love. We, we made love. No, you didn't. You're making a mess, is what you're doing. You're injuring people. You're damaging people. Stealing from anyone you want. Things that aren't yours. Sex outside of marriage doesn't say, I love you, but it says, I love me. I don't care what you feel like whenever we're done here. I care about what I feel like. You know, I've heard it many times. You know, but, but me and my girlfriend... We haven't done that. At least we've done, but we've done all this other stuff. That usually is referring to sexual intercourse. Well, well, all of that other stuff, whatever it may be, it falls under the category that Paul says, uncleanness. That's not self-giving love. That's self-absorbed love. That's covetousness, taking what I want, lusting for things that don't belong to me. Until I marry that person, it doesn't belong to me. These attitudes, he says, pour over into our speech, too. He tells us that the children of God should not be characterized by filthy, foolish talking, filthy language, coarse jesting, which refers to inappropriate sexual humor or innuendo. You know, you know the people that can take any normal conversation and just find a way to make a sexual joke out of it. A Christian shouldn't be taking any part in this foolishness, is what he says. Foolish, I love this, he is translated as moronic. Don't be a moron and join in on the dirty jokes. None of these things are fitting for the Christian. The saints, he calls us. To, to be a saint is to be set apart for God's use. Sexual immorality doesn't align with God's will for your life and the purposes for sex. Shouldn't even be named about you, he said. But, obviously, since Paul is writing this letter, not to the world, but he's writing it to a group of Ephesian Christians, and to us, it was a problem they struggled with. It's a problem we struggle with today. Ephesus, it was a, a corrupt city, and the center for sexual immorality in the ancient world, there was the worship of sex happening every day there. And believers in the city were starting to look more like and imitate the world instead of God. This happens today too. We live in a society that is drenched with sexual immorality in every corner. It's celebrated as a good thing. Not a taboo thing anymore. And you are the taboo dinosaur if you don't agree with the world's views on sexuality. Who are you imitating? 
you know, we can, we can get into conversations with other believers and start to gripe and complain and shout about how bad our world is. Oh man, our environment is just horrible. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you too. Oh, it's horrible. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. And yes, I agree. It is bad. There is temptation behind every scroll of your finger on that screen. Scroll down any media feed and you'll quickly see a sexual image. You try to look past because you know you shouldn't be looking at that, but you scroll back up, look at it again. No, I shouldn't be looking at that. Scroll away. Scroll back up. You're clicking on it and now you're trapped. There's traps like this laid in every area of life, trying to get our young kids, our teens, plugged into the wrong heroes to imitate. You know, this is exactly why we need to come to the Word of God and listen and allow Him to say, no more. There should be no more of that in your life, Christian. It doesn't matter what your environment is. You can't blame it on that. As you cling to the Word, though, He starts to change you, renew you, build something strong in your heart, an identity that is rooted as a child of God, forsaking the old lifestyles of sin that we once walked in. And I'll be that much more ready to battle next time an image flashes across my screen. You know, Apostle Paul, and if you're familiar with this this skit, Bob Newhart, they were right just stop it. Stop it. And we should. Because verse 5 says, For this you know, the no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. It says the person walking in lust, resting in old habitual practice of sin, comfortable, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know, we're given this new life in the work of Jesus. And if our old life, our old man was crucified on the cross, and you're the new man, the new man should live differently than the old dead guy that's hanging on the tree. There's a change. Now, the changes in the Christian's life are all done at once. It's not instantaneous. We're growing. We're being sanctified. But there should be some change there. You shouldn't be comfortable in it. But people can claim, oh yeah, I love God. I love God. Oh yeah, me and God, we tight. But, but their life is lived completely in habits of sin. You know, you can talk the talk all you want, but the way you walk reveals the truth. And there are plenty of people under the disguise of Christianity who want to deceive you, Paul says, with empty words to remain in that blindness. Kind of sounds like this, some empty words. Don't worry about being pure. Don't worry about your sin. It's okay. We know you prayed to accept Jesus. You're good. Do what feels right to you. 
Or I, I can't believe that a loving God would judge you because you're living this way. I mean, you were born this way, right? How could a loving God judge you for being you? I don't think that's right. God is love after all. So you just keep doing you. Guys, those things are lies. This deception Paul describes, it occurs today. It occurs in the church. The church who supports a person's lifestyle of sin or homosexuality even. They're lying and deceiving that person to be comfortable in sin leading to destruction. Paul says that since the only future for sin is judgment and death, don't align yourself, don't identify yourself with what I've told you will be judged. Don't let anyone deceive you to stay there. You know, my identity, your identity, should not be placed in who we were before we gave our lives to Christ, right? It should not be placed in the sins that were once strongholds in my life. God did not make anyone with homosexual desires. We were born into a sinful world. And we all struggle with some similar things and also some different things. But I don't go around and hold my identity. I introduce myself myself as Andrew, the porn addict Christian. I don't call myself that. Paul doesn't sign his letters in the Bible, Paul, the executioner Christian, the persecutor. You know, I don't wear, wear my old identity because that was the old me who was nailed to the cross of Jesus. I am not the same. I'm a child of God made righteous by the Savior. Thank you, God. Why am I holding on to that? I'm not. I don't want to. And you shouldn't either. You know, when we hold on to our former identity before Christ, we leave room in our flesh to justify relapses of that lifestyle. Before you know, we're in that habit again, and, and Satan wants to make it worse and deceive you into thinking that it's okay. And, you know, God is love, so he's okay with you being this way. No, he's not. I'm say one more thing on, on this topic, but there, there, are there Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction? Yes. Just like there are Christians who struggle with heterosexual immorality. Is it possible for a Christian to commit these kinds of immoral sins? Yes. But if that sin continues and dominates your life, your characteristics and traits, it's fair to ask if you are who you actually say you are. We should be walking in love, not in lust. Imitating Christ's self-giving love is the correct response to what he's done for us. He builds upon this in verse, verse 8. Read with me. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So the next characteristic of God we should be imitating in our walk is walking in light, not darkness. And he makes a heavy statement right at the beginning. I hope you caught how he said it. He says, you were, you were once darkness. 
He doesn't say before you're a Christian, you were in the darkness. He says, no, bro, you are the darkness. You were darkness. You and I made darkness darker. We actively contributed to the darkness of the world. But notice that glorious word that comes next. He says, but. But now you are light in the Lord. He doesn't say you have the light or you're walking in the light, but you are the light in this world. Notice that distinction again. Don't identify with what you once were, darkness. You are now light. Go walk as a child of the light. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus calls himself this, I am the light of the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching to his disciples, he says to them, you are the light of the world. Imitate Jesus. You are the light. You are the light. There's something different about you. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. You are built different. We should be marked by goodness, sharing with truth, the truth with others that are in darkness. We should no longer be defiling people, sexualizing other people's minds with our dirty speech. Don't have fellowship with the works of darkness, he even says, but rather expose the darkness. That's what light does, right? Light, it exposes the truth, exposes what's actually happening. You know, have you ever flipped over a big rock in the woods only to expose underneath like a whole community of like little insects and bugs and lizards and worms thriving in the darkness? What happens when the light shines in on them? Like they lose their minds, they scram, they don't want, they want to find the darkness. They go every direction and to find another dark place to go do whatever weird things those bugs are doing. I mean, why are bars and clubs always so dark and dim? Because they're just living for God in there, right? No. There's sin occurring. If you, being the light of the world, walk into a sinful environment... And there's things that are happening and then you're obviously not partaking in them. Those people in the room know who you are. How does that make people feel? Exposed, right? Exposed, it should at least. You know, the world doesn't have other light sources. Darkness reigns. They can't get light except through God's people reflecting Jesus. We are rubbing shoulders with darkness every single day. If you're at school, in the office break room, at our kids' team sports events, the question is, do you stand out? Does your life bring light to the darkness? Or do people in my circles know that I'm a Christian even? Do I cause people to question, what's so different about him or her? Or... Are we giggling in the corner at the crude jokes and expletives used by our coworkers? Well, sure, you didn't get up and go look at the picture they're sharing around or, or say something to engage in the conversation, but that's just the problem. You said nothing. We, we still walk in darkness when we are silent and we hide our light. It's not enough, he says, just to not participate in darkness. He says that, 
But he also says, expose darkness. God is saying this to us. Maybe you walk in and maybe you hear that stuff happening. You say, hey man, I don't want to hear you guys talking like that around me. Just don't include me on those kind of conversations. Hey, can you keep the foul language down around me? I I don't appreciate it. Are you different, influential in your environment? Maybe you already have that reputation, and you know you do because you can tell because your coworkers, your teammates, behave differently when you walk in the room, right? The laughing stops. <laughs> the cursing ceases. The tone is different when you're around. They kind of calm down. Take that as a win. Like, great, you're exposing darkness. The dark world needs light givers, and it needs it fast. Because verse 13, all things are, that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Everything is going to be exposed. In the meantime, there are Christians who are, he's saying, he's talking to Christians here. They're sleeping, sleeping on the job living on cruise control, comfortable within the four walls of their home and their church, and doing nothing. Let, let that not be said of us. We've got to wake up and be the light of the world, not walking in light, not darkness. That's how we should imitate Jesus, the light of the world. He continues here, verse 15. He says, it gives us another area to walk. And it's the area of walking in wisdom, not foolishness. Verse 15, it says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It tells us to walk circumspectly. Which means to walk aware of your surroundings, looking around, walk wisely. The original root word, acrovos, is the same word we get for, and we use for the word acrobat. You know, a, a few months back, our family went to go see a circus show, and the tightrope walkers certainly knew how to walk with wisdom, aware of the way the rope moves under their feet. Paying attention to the, how their weight shifts from side to side as they try to balance out on that rope. And, and bringing all the other times they've been on that same rope with them in their mind for reference to how to respond if a problem happens. You know, a, a foolish walker, though, proceeds forward without caution, without setting boundaries, without keeping an eye on the environment around them. Paul tells us we need to walk wise, and we do this by redeeming the time. To redeem the time, or literally means to buy up the time, we must be treating time as a valuable commodity, which it is, right? It is. You, as if you only have so much of it, which you do. And the sense of urgency is placed on making the most of every opportunity for the Lord to be used by Him to be the light, to be his mouthpiece. Don't know where to start? If if you don't, I've got a challenge for you. Try it this week, and I know it will work. I know it. 
Every day, before you start your day, pray, Lord, I boldly ask you for opportunities today to be a light in someone else's life. Lord, I want to be used by you. Please help me to see those opportunities that are going to be out there in the dark world that you place in front of me. If you pray that each day, I know for a fact he's going to answer you and use you, Christian. He wants to use you. Make yourself available. Buy up those opportunities. You know, you you see someone crying in the corner. Don't just point at them and laugh and say, (laughs) what's their problem? What? They're weird. Go check on them. Ask if they need help. Pray for, or prayer. Be a light. You know, to, to walk wise, we need to walk with intention, unlike the fool who wastes time immersed in the culture, instead of being available to be used. We should organize our time based on what takes supremacy in our lives. And as a Christian, I believe your first priority should be your personal relationship with Jesus and his calling on your life. Don't walk through life without seeking the will of the Lord. God wants to work in and through you. So walk the line. Listen to his voice. Be used. He continues on this in verse 18. He says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for the things that to God the Father and all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he asked here, like, what, what is influencing now? What outside forces are influencing the way you walk? Paul boldly says that drunkenness is dissipation. Dissipation means wastefulness. Paul says, why choose to spend our time and our resources on something like drunkenness, on something like alcohol, a depressant, to the point that it hinders my wisdom, my ability to walk, sometimes literally, uh, my ability to judge and maintain self-control. You know, being impaired or even setting out with the intention to get impaired by any substance is sin. Paul contrasts the depressant effects of alcohol with the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know, is Paul saying we are to get drunk on the Holy Spirit? No, he's not saying that. He says the Holy Spirit has the opposite effect on us. As we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we grow in wisdom. We grow in self-control. The imitator of Christ seeks to walk in the Spirit, unlike the, the fool who's just walking in their own waste. And as you are filled with the Spirit, you will want to praise God even more. So you'll, you'll, want, you'll want to be an encouragement to others to praise Him with their lives. He is worthy of our responsive praise, right? We had a, a wonderful time of worship there. We sang that song, Is He Worthy? And yes, He is worthy. We praise Him with our lips and our heart. But how much more so can we praise Him with the way we live, with the way we walk, how we live day to day when we're outside of the sanctuary? Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. 
Now, if, if you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, we're about to get into a whole section on marriage. And in verse 22, he tells wives to submit to their own husbands. But Paul, he sets the stage here in verse 21 by saying, Christians submit to one another in the fear of God. This is going to set the context for the rest of the chapter where he's going to describe marriage. But the fourth and final way that Paul tells us to walk the talk is as we imitate Christ to to walk in submission, not selfishness. The word submitting here literally means to be under in rank. It's a military word. You know, just as we have varying levels of rank in the military, from privates to generals, in the lower ranks, they're expected and obligated to respect those of higher rank. I like how one commentator describes this concept of rank. Warren Wearsby, he says, rank has to do with order and authority. Everything to do with order and authority rather than value or ability. See, the the idea is simple about rank. When you tell Private Ryan to obey the rank of his general, submit under the rank. But Paul says more than that here. He, He says Christians submit to one another. What he's saying here, and some commentators say, this is essentially like him telling a group of privates to all submit to one another. That's confusing. When you tell two privates of the same rank to submit to one another, it is no longer about the order, but the emphasis shifts to to the reality that they are in the same squad. They're in the same team. So he's saying, look out for each other. Be a good squad mate. Well, how? Well, be thinking of the well-being of your other squad mates before your own needs. Submit to them. Look out for them. Keep up the team morale by working to create unity within the squad, not division. We are a squad of Christians. But you know, do you know what it destroys a squad from within? Selfishness of a single member. You guys are on the same team, fighting the same enemy. How can you succeed against your enemy when you're focused on fighting against each other? Christians, we're in this same squad. So let me ask you, do you get jealous or do we get bitter when we see a fellow brother or sister in Christ succeed more than we do? Are we happy for them and for the cause of the kingdom to be promoted forward? Or are we upset? Are you motivated to grow by watching your fellow believers? Or are you discouraged because you don't have what they have? We should be submitting to one another as Christians. Looking out for each other. Lifting each other up. Verse 21 at the end of it tells us why though. Out of fear and respect for God. I'm going to value you as my brother and my sister in Christ, not just because like it's the nice thing to do, but because I love Jesus, and I want to be like him. Now, now don't misunderstand, though. There, there is still God-appointed order in rank in the church. 
You know, in Hebrews 13, we're told to be submissive to those who ruled over us. It's the, those who watch out for our souls. That's what it says. Like, like leaders and elders and pastors. There is an order, appointed order in the church. But in the church, there are also many individual squads in the body of Christ. And the main one, and the one that Paul's going to focus in on, is the husband and wife dug in on the front line together. So let's, let's read the rest of these verses here and get an idea of what our marriage foxhole should look like. And I'm sorry if you're tired of the military symbolism, but I can't help it. Verse, verse 22 says, Wives, we're just going to read the whole thing here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. I really like reading through that in its entirety. It, it shows us, and allows us to see that God has appointed both an individual position and a purpose for both the wife and the husband in a marriage. Paul begins in verse 22 by telling us the position of the wife in marriage, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, the wife's position of submission has, again, nothing to do with value or ability and does not imply inferiority either but it has everything to do with God-appointed order. You've heard it said before by Pastor Sandy, that there's a mission for the Christian marriage, and that mission is obeying and glorifying God. And the wife says, I'm going to put myself sub under that mission as a part of this squad. This is the wife's position. And now the husband's commanded position is found in verse 25. It says, husband's Love your wives. Doesn't just stop there, though. Love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Wait a second. Don't those words sound kind of familiar? Of course, because those are the same words that Paul uses at the beginning of the chapter in describing to us how to walk in love. The God kind of love. Husband, you should love your wife with a self-sacrificing, a self-giving love that gives without expecting anything in return. 
You should love your wife enough to die for her. Which, which I think really brings us back over here to the pennies. Because let's be honest, and if I, I, I guarantee you some man in this room, someone's thinking, like, wouldn't it just be easier if I can just give my wife a hundred and just say, hey, honey, can you just take this and we can call it even? No. No, no, no. Husband, you're called to lay down your life in thousands of little ways each day for your wife. Lay down your life for your wife. Thousands of each small ways each day to love her as Christ has loved you. So, the wife's position of submission is beautifully balanced with the husband's position of love. And the overarching purpose for both the husband and the wife in marriage, he tells us, is to, we're, we're illustrating this relationship between Jesus and the church. Through their relationship with one another, this is what the wife and husband are doing. God chose to set it up this way, and man, is it not so beautiful. But, you know what can destroy a marriage, a squad from within? Selfishness in either member. Are are you and your spouse living right now as a team? Or are you dug in in opposite corners of the foxhole? How can you succeed against the enemy, against the world, when you're focused on fighting with each other? You're on the same team. You know, I can personally attest that the more my wife, Allie, and I die to ourselves, the more we do that, the better, the sweeter our marriage becomes. And we're learning a whole lot doing that. And here's the great thing. If, if we, as individuals, correctly respond to the love and work of Jesus Christ in our life, as individuals, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom and submission, if we walk that way and then we bring that way of life into our positions we've been called to in marriage, man, we're going to be well on our way to fulfilling God's purpose and will in our marriage. We're, we're called into individual relationships with Jesus, right? So as we close here, I just want to ask you, how's yours? Who have you been imitating? Who's the hero in your life right now? It's easy to talk the talk, but how's your walk? So, so Christian, if you've been living in lust, living in darkness, foolishness, selfishness, and these things are starting to characterize your lifestyle, I would say there's something wrong. God is saying there's something wrong. A Christian may be in sin for a season, but as you know, if that's where you're at, it's miserable. Can't last. Guys, today is the day to repent and begin imitating Christ. Or maybe your identity this morning is wrapped up in your desires in the world. But as you know by experience, if that's you, you don't know Christ, that also is a miserable way to live. And the only future, Paul says, is for sin is death and judgment. But God, 
But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Won't you accept him today? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the incomprehensible love that you have for us, Lord. And the the things that you laid down, you laid down your own son's life for us to have life and be set free from our bondage. Lord, I, I pray that we'd all just recognize that you are worthy of us walking the right way in response to that. Living our lives wholly for you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't made that decision before for the first time, Lord, that they would not waste any more time. Don't miss any more opportunities to have the the freedom, the joy-filled life of a Christian. Lord, we love you. And I I pray that for those that that are struggling or maybe in a, a season of sin, Lord, that they would repent and get right with you. We love you and just pray that you'll just work these things into our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.